Hello and welcome to Paleo Cinema Podcast 248. My name is Terry Frost and this week I'm doing two movies which of which there is a lot to say. The first one is from 1954, it's a remake and it is the 1954 version of A Star Is Born starring Judy Garland and James Mason. From there we move on a little way to 1962 for one of the great Italian films of the 60s which doesn't get enough oxygen and enough love in my book and it's a movie I saw for the first time this year it is Dino Rizzi's Il Sopasso starring Vittorio Gassman and Jean-Louis Trintignant um, really great road movie fantastic soundtrack both of them are a lot of fun so sit back and get the contact details out of the way and we'll get the show started Paleo Cinema Podcast is a podcast of old movie appreciation. There's only a couple of rules here. The first one is the movie has to be at least 20 years old, and it's a rule I break occasionally. And the second rule is I have to find some interesting things to say about it. Uh, feedback's very important to the podcast, so you can offer it a couple of ways. You can offer some at feedbackpaleo at gmail.com. You can go to the Paleo Cinema Cafe on Facebook, and also... Or you can send me an owl if you went to Hogwarts. You can even support the podcast by going to patreon.com slash paleocinema and donating as little as $1 US per month. Just be aware with the podcast, I may swear occasionally, so you might not want to let your kids hear it if you don't want them to pick up filthy words with Australian pronunciation. Before I do get the show started, I've got to do a shout out to a friend of the podcast, Armin who has given me a goodie bag of wonderful stuff, one of which is a bunch of German biscuits, so thank you very much, Armour, for the biscuits. And I got two volumes of the Blu-ray editions of a bunch of Edgar Wallace Krimi movies from Germany in the 1960s, which is going to be on my binge list. Um, beautifully packaged. They do have English subtitles, which is useful for me. He also gave me a couple of other movies. I'm going to butcher the names. I'll, I'll warn you about that. One's called uh, Schnee Flockenchen, which I got wrong, obviously, which is a supernatural modern movie. And another one's called Das Leben ist ein Botestel, which I got wrong as well. But um, I'm going to enjoy them. I'm going to watch them all. Uh, I, one of the things I promised myself in 2019 was to see more movies I hadn't seen. I looked at them by 2018 Letterboxd. By the way, the 2019's up on the Letterboxd already. And there were too many movies I rewatched. I was kind of going over things again, which is not necessarily a bad thing of itself. But I was doing too much of that. So one of the promises I made myself for this year, it's not a um, resolution or anything like that, but it's a promise is that I would try to watch more movies I hadn't seen before because you've got to keep yourself fresh with these things, particularly given the fact that I'm doing so much media about them with the radio, the YouTube channel and the podcast. I really want to try to see more movies I haven't seen before. And there are plenty of them out there. Um, the new ones, of course, being produced all the time. Plus, there are classic films coming out in a format I can access that I didn't know about before, Il Sopaso being one of them. So, yeah, it's um, it's going to be good. It's going to be a lot of fun, 2019, as far as the movie watching is concerned. So, anyway, how are you? How's it going? Did you survive the new year? If you didn't, you're not listening to this. Uh, yeah, it was pretty okay here. We've had a couple of hot days, but nothing really chronic yet. Other parts of Australia have had 
crazy oppressive weather a lot but that's part of the deal of climate change things change so melbourne's been a little cooler than normally is but i suspect later in the week and ongoing from that for a while we're going to get fucking hot um yeah i'm fine with that i'm I'm it's not a problem for me at all but um yeah it's a little bit of an unusual start to the summer season we had a very quiet new year didn't do too much just watched the fireworks and hung out um i'm getting a lot of things organized as far as the creative stuff's concerned getting a bit more discipline with the podcast current podcast notwithstanding and also with the youtube videos i'm getting into a process of doing them i'm learning every day more and more about what i want to do with the youtube and what i need to do and that's great i just love the fact i'm on this new adventure and it's going, you're going to notice the difference. If you're following my YouTube channel, which you can find at youtube.com slash letter C, C, slash Terry Frost, because I've got my own URL now, hooray, you'll be able to get to my YouTube channel and see the movies that I talk about. Uh, I did one this week about the seven movies that make me happy, because I thought I'd start out the new year with something a little bit buoyant and joyous and um yeah i'm kind of okay with that one it's a lot of work doing these ones where i can't use video i can use tiny bits of video but not very much at all and it's um it's constraining me i'm going to find a different way to do this and it's probably going to end up me being a talking head with a window showing stills from the video alongside me which is okay i can work towards that i can throw in a bit of b-roll as well uh, with little bits of stuff so yeah i'm kind of slowly getting in my mind the way i want things to go with the youtube and um, as i said it's a lot of fun and adventurous by the way we are still sticking to the richard rule on the podcast which is i need to start talking about the actual movies themselves at the 15 minute mark of the podcast to keep richard happy happy to do that uh so what have i been watching what have i watched this year besides il Paso? I saw a documentary on Netflix, which was really, really interesting. It's about a close-up stage magician who does does card tricks. Um, He's kind of in his 60s. He's been working for a number of years, and there's a twist to it. I'm not going to do the twist because it's part of the narrative, the twist. But I found it really interesting. The close-up magic was beautiful to watch. I always like watching card manipulation close-up because occasionally I can see how it's being done, but it's being done with such wonderful grace and naturalness that it's not a problem for me to know a little bit of what the card manipulation is. The guy's name is Richard Turner, and he really is an extraordinary um, card manipulator. I really enjoyed watching that one. And it was one of those movies that started me off in the year going, okay, that was really cool. I'm glad I'm doing things I haven't seen before in the new year, which is great. I then saw something I haven't seen. The, it's a sequel, but I haven't seen the first movie, and I don't think I've missed out too much. And that's Paddington 2, Electric Boogaloo. Um, Paddington 2, about Paddington, a little bear from South America who goes to live in with a family in London. It's a lot of fun. Um, that movie really rocked. It's got some great actors in there. Um, Hugh Bonneville, Sally Hawkins, Brendan Gleeson doing a really nice comic role as a prison chef called Knuckles McGinty which you tells you the kind of thing. We've got Julie Walters in there, Jim Broadbent, Peter Capaldi playing a bad guy. Hugh Grant is the main villain in the movie. 
and you can watch this one and have a lot of fun. There are little bits and pieces that kind of intrigue adults, but kids kind of miss, which is always nice in a kid's movie. But Paddington 2 is definitely on a recommended list for me because it was just a lot of fun, and it did what it did very, very well. Now, I've got one movie that I started but I didn't finish. It's a movie called Rupture with Numi Rapace in it, which has got a science fiction premise, and it's pretty bad. It's off Netflix. Um, She's a a woman with a child, and she's divorced, gets kidnapped and um, subjected to scientific experimentation by a mysterious bunch of people, including Michael Chiklis. Yeah, I knew where it was going, and then I quickly checked Wikipedia, and sure enough, yeah, it was going there. Didn't finish it. Um, It's rare that I don't finish a movie, but that one, it's really kind of a waste of eyeball for me to finish it because I know where it's going. It's not going to give me anything surprising or wonderful. And I know Netflix needs this kind of content to fill their time, but yeah, no. Then I went on to a Wuxia thing um, and saw a Wuxia movie Shaw Brothers did in the 1960s with which I was familiar but I hadn't seen it. It is The Five Venoms, which is really, really kick-ass Shaw Brothers, 1960s, maybe early 1970s. Hang on, I'm going to check. Mm-hmm. 1978. I got it totally fucking wrong. But, yeah, I really enjoyed it. Uh, it's about a, a master Wuxia guy from the Poison Clan, who dispatches his last pupil on a crucial mission. Um, there are five other pupils of his who do different styles of kung fu. One does centipede style, one does snake, scorpion, lizard, and toad. And the new student, um, Yang Che, knows all the styles. It's crazy good. It's got a whole bunch of different styles of martial arts in it. does a little bit of wire work, but most of it's just done with the choreography. And it works. I'm going to have to do more of that stuff. I know it's on Netflix, and I'm going to have to dip in because there are a couple of other ones I want to really have a go at. Uh, Let's see. What else have I been watching? I did watch a Japanese movie directed, oddly enough. It's called Manhunt, and it was done for Netflix, oddly enough. John Woo wanted to get back to his old-school action stuff. And so he did a Japanese crime drama, which is a remake of a 1970s movie that Ken uh, Takakura starred in back in 1976, which I really should do for the podcast because I think that would work well. Um, it was shot in Osaka and uh, Tokyo, and I'm going to both of those places in April. Yeah! I'm so excited. Um, Dotonbori was one of the great um, set pieces in there. Dotonbori is an area of Osaka, which is along a canal, and there's a bit of a water chase and a bit of shooting and John Woo-style action along the waterfront there. And we're going to that area. In fact, our hotel's like three blocks away from there. So it's going to be a lot of fun. And it's classic old-school John Woo. It's not the best of his work by any means, but it's got a lot of his tropes. And there's a car chase that goes deliberately up to the top of a hill so that the cars can crash into a dove cut and a whole bunch of white doves can fly around as a John Woo signature piece. It's a lot of fun. It's a good, solid action film. It's got a slightly science fiction element with a super soldier serum involved, which is kind of crazy. But it's action. I mean, it's a John Woo movie. It's not there for the nuance. It's not anything like the movies he did with Chow Yun-Fat. 
but it's good, solid action stuff. I think some of the um, editing, I think it was re-edited by somebody else because some of the editing is a little bit ropey at times. And because I'm starting to do video editing myself, I'm noticing little bits of rough edits that kind of don't work. But there's a tiny bit of that in there, which is a slightly disappointing thing. But again, it's for Netflix. It didn't cost me anything to watch it, so I shouldn't really complain about it. Okay, so what else have I got? Um, sorry to bother you. I saw that. It's a recent film from last year, I think, which is totally fucking crazy. I'm not going to even go to try to describe sorry, about, sorry to bother you. But if you haven't seen it, see it, because you're going to be in for a hell of a ride there. It is surrealistic. It's a bit of a social commentary. It's a comedy it's quite dark in places, but there's not a movie quite like it. Um, you, it's, it nails capitalism pretty well. And having once worked in a call centre, I can understand where some of the characters are coming from. But you should really see that. Uh, it's, it's fucking mad, basically. And the other thing, which I'm halfway through, is King Cohen, the documentary about Larry Cohen, the famous cult movie director. I'm halfway through that. And I'm going to watch the rest of it after I finish podcasting. It goes through his history as a director and as a writer and the problems he's had with Hollywood to get financing for things and all that kind of stuff. He started out crazy young. He was like 19 when he got his first gig writing for episodic television. And it goes on to all the cult movies that we know and love of his. He's a, a larger-than-life character. He is quite articulate. He's still going around and still trying to cut deals. But if you're a fan of Larry Cohen's work, you've got to see this documentary. Uh, it's just right in the sweet spot of my cultural obsessions, let's say. And it's definitely recommended. I'm, I'm, gonna, I'm really looking forward to seeing the second half of it because I had to. I basically started getting sleepy last night and didn't watch the end of it. But I will. And the half I've seen is a high recommendation. So that's about all I've seen, apart from the two movies of which I'm going to speak after we hit the 15-minute mark. I'm going to slow down my talking, too. I've had three espressos today, which is my normal ration, but I'm feeling a little more. I've been to the gym fairly regularly since the New Year started. And um, when I go to the gym and I start kind of getting the cardio and the, the muscle tone going a little bit, I mean, I'm never going to be ripped but I'm, I'm happy with my progress on these things. I noticed that coffee starts really having a nice effect on me. But anyway, we've hit the 15-minute mark now, which means I get to play the trailer for the first of the two movies of which I'm going to speak, which is a 1954 remake of the 1937 original movie A Star Is Born. This one directed by George Cukor and starring... Judy Garland and James Mason and like a lot of trailers for its time this one is definitely over the top Say 
a star is born. And in its splendor and deep emotional fire, in its shining beauty and wonderful heart, a new era in motion picture achievement is also born. You'll see it in the richness and magnificence so lavishly poured into every scene. You'll feel it in the countless moments of deep human understanding. You'll hear it in the rousing tempo of its great music. And you'll know it when you experience the joy and jubilation of Judy Garland as the star. And you'll never forget James Mason as Norman Maine, clinging desperately to the only real love he'd ever known. There's Jack Carson, Charles Bickford, all bringing inspired life to a story that only life itself could have inspired. You don't know what it's like to see somebody you love crumble away in front of your eyes bit by bit, day by day. I, I hate myself because I failed too. You got it, just like you dreamed it. No, I've got more, so much more. It's a new world I see, a new world for me. This is a story of a little girl. Searching, searching, searching. For she knows somewhere is a someone who's a someone for her. This is a story. You want to have bells that'll ring. You want to have songs that'll sing. You want your sky of baby blue. You got to have me go with you. For it started many years ago. trunk in the princess So, A Star Is Born is a um, remake of a 1937 movie, oddly enough called A Star Is Born, which was directed by Bill Wellman and starred Frederick March and Janet Gaynor playing the Esther Blodgett role, which is the one Judy Garland has in this remake. The remake came about because Sid Luft, who was the husband of Judy Garland at the time, brought the studio the suggestion that they make a remake of A Star Is Born and kind of tailor it around Judy Garland. She hadn't made a feature film in four years because she was busy having children and nervous breakdowns and things like that, not to kind of minimise anybody with mental health issues. But that's the reason why. In many regards, it's a really fine film. There's some great acting in it. Uh, Judy Garland, I'm going to get back to her because I'm kind of conflicted about her acting in this movie. But James Mason is pretty damn good playing her husband, Norman Maine. Uh, James Mason was a finer actor than he often was given the roles for. If you look at him in a movie like Odd Man Out, um, he 
spent the whole movie dying, <laughs> not in a theatrical sense, but in a literal sense. And, um, yeah, he, he did have the chops as an actor. And in this one, he's playing second fiddle to the female role because George Cukor, the director of this film, was seen as a women's director because they had such things in those days. And so the movie is tailored around the female character, which, oddly enough, isn't something that the subsequent remakes really did. Uh, the 1976 movie did, uh, the one with uh, Chris Christopherson and Barbara Streisand was definitely around Barbara Streisand. It was very much a vanity project. And I'm not going to rewatch it ever because, you know, those kind of things stick in my craw a little bit. But the argument could be made also that, to a certain extent, this version of it was a vanity project for Judy Garland. But the 2018 remake is definitely not that. It's complex and nuanced. Both the um, in this in the 19, uh, 2018 version, Jackson Maine is the character's name. Uh, it's as much about him as it is about the female lead. Not because Bradley Cooper was kind of doing an ego thing there, but because it's got a lot more complex viewpoint on the um, medical and mental issues of the character, which makes it a much more interesting movie in a lot of ways than any of the previous versions. But to get back to this one, Mason is good. Charles Bickford plays a studio head who is a friend of Norman Maines and then subsequently a, a friend of Vicky Lester, the character played by Judy Garland. She starts out with the name Esther Blodgett, which gets changed to Vicky Lester. Without her knowledge, she goes up and tries to get a paycheck one day when she's a studio um, contracted player and finds out that her name's being changed. So that's kind of cute. And it's a, there, there are these slight little jabs in this movie about how much of a machine Hollywood is and how it's all about making money. And once you fall off the popularity bandwagon or even fall off the wagon, as the Norman main character does with his alcoholism and his clearly there are mental health issues below that, but it's never actually mentioned in the movie. But reading between the lines, he's, he's got a crippling self-doubt, which when things aren't going well, he tends to bury in alcohol, which is something that was quite common at that time and is not uncommon in our time, unfortunately. The movie's definitely got weighed down by that idea of alcoholism being a crisis of character rather than a disease that people um, acquire and have a lot of difficulty getting rid of. In fact, there was a thing, and I'm digressing a little bit, but bear with me. There was a thing in the one of the um, a news item recently saying that people who have certain genes which were inherited from Neanderthals are the people who have a lot of trouble once they are alcoholic getting off the booze there's actually a gene complex which complicates the processes by which somebody gets off alcohol and it's inherited from neanderthal dna it's a problem that people whose ancestry is entirely african don't have so go and figure white people are more susceptible to staying on the booze when they're alcoholic than people of color with um an entirely african genome so you learn something now, the the movie's got, I mean, great music. The weird thing for me is um, the best song in the movie is front-loaded at the beginning of the movie. It serves a great dramatic purpose because it's the scene where after they initially meet 
at a charity gala and Norman Maines pisses a newt and actually does some violent things. He pushes Esther around. He um, is quite rude. He's hassling ballerinas and other dancers and doing all sorts of things that wouldn't play in the Me Too era. And he's quite unpleasant. And that, that again, is a problem. That's the first problem the movie is. The main male character for whom we are supposed to have some sympathy starts out really ugly and really nasty. And from our point of view and from our sensibilities here in 2019, he doesn't play well. Uh, it's a kind of jarring thing for me re-watching this movie. But to get back to the song, he goes and tries to track down Esther to kind of apologise to her because he's um, overcome with remorse once he does sober up a bit and finds her in an after-hours club with a bunch of musos and she sings The Man Who Got Away, which is the best song in the whole movie. And yes, it serves the dramatic purpose of him recognising her talents and f- kind of starting to fall in love with her. And I really think we need something towards the end of the film that balances that. You need to have a bit of weight on both ends. And we don't quite get that in this movie. I think it's a missed opportunity to find another show-stopping song to balance the other end of the movie. Yeah, the, the other end of the movie is tragic, of course, because here's a spoiler. Norman, in order to not hinder Vicky's career, walks off into the ocean and doesn't come back again. He may well have swamped to Australia, but odds are against that. One of the problems I have with the um, main character, Vicky, is that unlike in the Lady Gaga remake, she's totally accomplished at what she does from day one. She works in a band. She's a band singer, kind of like the way Peggy Lee started out with Benny Goodman's orchestra. And she doesn't have any learning curve as far as her career and her talent is concerned. Because she's being played by Judy Garland, a big star, there's not that arc that you get in the Lady Gaga, Bradley Cooper remake of her learning her craft and being encouraged in that craft by her husband. You're getting Mun doing a whole bunch of the makeup and hairstyle things that are done to her by the studio. Makeup and hairstyle people but you don't see him actually nurturing her talent itself in the same way you do in, in the later remakes. And that's one of the things that's very perceptive about the remakes is the way they kind of deal with the weaknesses that are inherent in earlier versions. I got a really nice piece of acting by Jack Carson, who later on did, um, let's see, Cat on a Hot Tin Roof. He was in Cat on a Hot Tin Roof playing the other brother uh, and son of Burl Ives' character, Big Daddy. And in this one, he's sarcastic and totally cynical as a PR guy who has picked up Norman Maine's shit for a long time. And when he gets the opportunity to, he turns cruel and turns nasty on him when he's down on his luck. Uh, he's a nasty piece of work, this character that um, character is called Matt Libby, and he's a PR guy. And we see him kind of come around at the end of the movie where he's doing all of the press for Norman Maine's funeral. And he's a total corporate whore in the worst possible way with not meaning anything pejorative to sex workers at all, but he's really a a company man in the worst possible senses of being a company man, which again is one of the ways in which this movie shows the negative aspects of Hollywood. 
The other weird thing is Charles Bickford playing Oliver Niles, the studio head, who is kind of friends with Norman and then becomes friends with Vicky. And, you know, he's supportive and he kind of talks truth, he says, to her about Norman's career when he's down on his luck and all those kind of things. And there's a subtext to that character that's really interesting as well because, you know, he talks about talent a lot and he talks about career and things like that, whereas what he means is making money for me. When Norman has a couple of flops and his alcoholism, which has always been there and has always been a problem, becomes unacceptable because he's not making enough money for them to put up with his alcoholism, then he gets dumped by the studio. And later on, as he's in recovery, and um, I'll talk about the place where he's in recovery a little bit later. When he's in recovery, again, um, Oliver takes it on himself later in the film to tell Vicky that her husband's washed up and he won't have a career in the future. And, of course, Norman overhears that, and it's part of the stuff that makes him go and top himself. So there's an insensitivity to the people around the main couple to A, mental illness, B, alcoholism, and C, the milk of human kindness in a sense. And this is probably where the movie, in an interesting way but in a kind of dark way, shows us the difference between the way things were perceived in the 1950s, 60-odd years ago and how they're perceived now. There's a cruelty to the Hollywood system as portrayed in this movie that we know is there, and the Weinstein thing has brought out a whole bunch of different aspects of that. But there is an innate underlying cruelty which is accepted by the narrative and not questioned at all by the narrative in this movie because Kukor and all the other people involved in the film and the studio itself, which is Warner Brothers, are so embedded in that system that they can't really question it and they can't challenge it. We see the sanatorium where Norman is is, um, being incarcerated while he's recovering from uh, a very bad alcoholic binge at the Oscars of all places. I know a little bit about nursing homes these days. And it's a Victorian place. The wallpaper is crummy. The place is dreary as fuck. Norman is shadowed by a very scary-looking male nurse whom he dubs Cuddles, calls him Cuddles, um, played by an actor called Henry Kolke, who was also in The 5,000 Fingers of Dr. T, playing one of the guards of Dr. Terwilliger. Um, He's been in a whole bunch of movies, but not only does um, Norman have a kind of dreary environment, which has got nothing at all um, to, (laughs) to make it seem therapeutic, but he's shattered by a big bruiser of a guy who will... Um, physically restrain him if possible. I don't know whether they still do that in places where people are in that form of recovery. I've been to a couple of um, mental health institutions in the past and I haven't seen anybody that looked that much like a bouncer these days. But it's kind of not the sort of place where you think, yes, somebody's going to get better being here. It's very much a kind of tough love sort of place which I found kind of repugnant. Which again kind of goes into that thinking about alcoholism as a moral weakness rather than an ailment and as a a syndrome or a disease. To get back to the Judy Garland role, 
there's a crazy and very long self-referential sequence, the Born in a Trunk sequence, where she's doing a bit from one of her movies, and it's all about her career as, or her, the character she's playing's career, as a kind of born on the born in a trunk on a stage kind of thing, which again parallels uh, Judy Garland's life to a certain extent. And there's this, it's a long sequence of of kind of self love, in a sense. Um, there's one stage where the character says, because she isn't getting roles, she's a ghost, which kind of implies that everybody else who's not on stage and is not famous and is not talented and gifted and all the rest of it is just not worth anything. Uh, there's a kind of, again, there's a subtext there, which I noticed. Um, it's It goes on and on, this sequence. It really does go on for a fair while. But uh, it gets interesting because there are some very nice abstract set designs, which I appreciated in that part. Maybe it was a budgetary thing where they had to go abstract rather than um, kind of pseudo-realistic. But there are some nice set designs in that piece, which kind of worked. But most of it was, you know, a kind of idolatry of Judy Garland and the character she's playing which came across as kind of smarmy and smug, in a sense, which I've kind of, you know, I, I was, wasn't quite comfortable with, which brings us to the big problem I have with this film. Yeah, it's a fine film. It's, it's made really well. There's some great moments in it. But that kind of uh, attention-seeking masochism that was part of Judy Garland's persona is something I found problematic for me because uh, I'll use an example that happens here at the moment. Uh, It's summer here in Australia so a lot of the um, radio people are going away on holidays and get replaced by sometimes stand-up comedians, sometimes other people from other parts of the industry who do the summer season. And there's one here in Melbourne which will make everything about herself. She's talking about climate change and manages to twist it to being about herself and how horrified she is about climate change. And there's that kind of dragging the spotlight onto yourself, even when it's not entirely serving what you're doing, that I see in the Judy Garland persona in this movie. Yeah, yeah, she's she's very fine at what she does, but there are bits where she's overacting, particularly when she's talking about Norman's illness. And again, it makes it about the Esther character, which, of course, is the focus of the movie and is kind of an important thing. As I said, this was seen as a women's picture. And so, of course, the focus does have to be on her. But there's that dragging of the spotlight onto oneself that happens a lot in this film. And, of course, it may well be because Sid Luft brought Warner Brothers the project and Judy Garland had a fair bit of clout as far as this movie was concerned. But it doesn't play well. Not because it's a woman who's the centrepiece of the picture and because it's a woman who um, is expressing emotions and things like that. It's nothing to do with that. It's to do with the emotion she's showing serving the narrative arc. And the narrative isn't served by having a long music sequence. I mean, this movie was three hours long. 
and there are cuts that could have been made to make it better and tighter and to make the narrative work. But it wasn't done for because at the time it wasn't there wasn't perceived to be anything wrong with that. I mean, you can make the parallel, and I'm going to. The Judy Garland at this stage in her career and in A Star Is Born is the female equivalent of Tom Cruise. Tom Cruise did the Mummy movie a couple of years ago, and it skewed the entire story and it skewed the entire idea that Universal had of making a Dark Universe franchise by having Tom Cruise in there because everything in the movie became about Tom Cruise's character rather than about the story of a reanimated mummy. And this movie weighs so heavily toward the female character that it overbalances itself in a number of points during the film. And the fact that the songs that she's singing in, the, in some of the cases in these long musical numbers are particularly strong, even though she does put them across. Not particularly well-written song. Kind of fucks it up a little bit. Well, more than a little bit, but it does fuck it up. And that's the problem that I've got with this film is that I'm balancing towards the ego and the neediness of the lead actor, in this case Judy Garland, that makes it not play very well to me watching it in 2019. Now, I've got this movie for 10 bucks on um, DVD, so I'm not going to complain that I spent money on this and all that kind of stuff. And as I said, it's an admirable film in a lot of ways. It did a lot of things really well. But there are parts that just didn't sit well with me. And, yeah, that, that's fair enough. I'm, I'm watching it from my viewpoint all these years later. The movie was made three years before I was born. And so it kind of um, it is of its time. But I've still got to watch it through my eyes now when I'm talking about it. And that kind of egotism works against what they're trying to do. Now, for Judy Garland, it may well have been it was, you know, for her first movie in four years, she wanted to go out all guns blazing and kind of resurrect her career, which the movie didn't particularly do because of her, her various issues. And there were all the previous issues about um, her being sexually harassed by Louis B. Mayer and a bunch of other people. Um, having problems with diet pills and all of those things and hypochondria and that neediness and and all of the other issues, which weren't really her fault in a lot of cases. But the way she acted towards other people during her life and her career were her responsibility. I mean, they're, they're two separate things. There's, yep, there's things that are done to you that make you fucked up. I know this as much as anybody does. But then at a certain point, you turn a corner and you realise it's more about how you handle that and how you treat other people. There, there can be an instinct towards treating other people badly when you've had issues. But your responsibility is to not do that, is to bring out your best self when other people have needs as well. And there's no evidence of that in this film. Um, yes, I mean, the Estet character tries to help Norman and support him and do all of those kinds of things. But in doing so, as an actor, Judy Garland draws attention to herself rather than the person she's trying to help or the fact that she's finding her inner courage to have the strength to help him. There's not that kind of outwardness being portrayed in this movie, and that's kind of the weakness of it. 
which again is the, again the the most recent remake addresses all of those issues it's beautiful to see to compare and contrast the two and just see how adept Bradley Cooper and the other people involved in the production of the 2018 version address the weaknesses in the most well-known previous version of the film and really turn those weaknesses into strengths and use the things that went wrong and the things that were fucked up in the previous versions to strengthen and kind of scaffold their own narrative and their own movie. And the 2018 version is a much better film than any of the previous versions, I'll be honest about that. But to get back to the 1954 version, there's a lot of stuff that's really good in it. I saw the extended version where they've got some missing scenes which are filled out with the dialogue from the missing scenes and some stills taken on set. Um, that's the only other thing, I, only other movie I can think of where that's happened, and I'm sure there are others, but the original version of Lost Horizon from 1935 had some missing scenes which were filled in with the audio and with some still photos as well. And it would have been nice to have all of the um, the video, of course, but I think that in both the case of the 1935 Lost Horizon and 1954, A Star Is Born, they bridged the gap nicely between the what they had available and what they were trying to do with the filling out the bits that were cut from the story in the original release version. So that didn't particularly bother me, but um, that kind of Judy Garland bit really did bother me as I watched the movie, and I was madly scribbling notes. Let me see how many points I made. I made 95 different points about this movie when I was making my notes. Things like there were oil wells in L.A. at the time, and there's a scene where Esther runs behind an oil well to throw up just before a movie premiere, and that kind of stuff. And there's a part during the Oscar speech where Norman actually speaks truth to power in Hollywood and says, I made you a lot of money and I need a job. And that's where James Mason gets his moment to shine because he's playing a, a troubled man who's pulling himself out of the pit and nobody's given him a break. And it kind of then raises the question of why does Vicky want to be a star if there's it's in an industry where they treat her husband so shitty and they throw your ass out on the street when you can no longer be a cash cow for them. That's kind of... There are those little moments there that really work as far as criticising Hollywood. And I always like movies that criticise Hollywood. It's the reason nobody's made a movie adaptation of what makes Sammy run this Broadway play, which is about the corruption and venal nature of Hollywood. Um... There have been any number of attempts to make what makes Sammy run into a movie, but none of them have been successful because Hollywood won't touch the fucking thing. It's too critical of them. And this movie does get in a couple of good kidney punches, but again, the elephant in the room being Judy Garland and her persona and her neediness overwhelms that a lot. So anyway, I'm going to finish it there for a story. I'm not saying don't see the film, but that's just my take on it. And the things I found were strengths to it, which is a lot of the narrative. It's a beautifully made film. There's some great acting in it by secondary characters and even by Judy Garland in a couple of moments. But that ego thing and the neediness really kind of did make it a little stale for me. But anyway, I'm going to take a break. And when I get back, I'm going to talk about Il Sorpasso, which is an Italian movie from 1962 
that you really need to see. And to finish off um, with the Star is Born, I'm going to offer a little space to a contradictory view, 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 view of the main premise of A Star is Born. The world for some years has been sodden with tears on behalf of the acting profession. Each star playing a part seems to expect a purple heart. It's unorthodox to be born in a box, but it needn't become an obsession. Let's hope we have no worse to plague us than two shows a night in Las Vegas. When I think of physicians and mathematicians who don't earn a quarter the dough, when I look at the faces of people in maces, there's one thing I'm burning to know. Why must the show go on? It can't be all that indispensable. To me, it really isn't sensible on the whole to play a leading role. When fighting those tears you can't control Why kick up your legs when draining the dregs of sorrow's bitter cup Because you have read some idiot has said the curtain must stay up I'd like to know why a star takes bows Having just returned from burying her spouse Brave booper dupers go home and dry your tears Gallant old troopers, you've bored us all for years And if you're so blue, wet through and thoroughly woe-begone why must the show go on? Oh, Mammy, why must the show go on? We're asked to condole with each tremulous soul who steps out to be loudly applauded. Stars on opening nights weep when they see their names in lights. Though people who act as a matter of fact are financially amply rewarded. It seems when pursuing their calling, their suffering's simply appalling. But butchers and bakers and candlestick makers get little applause for their pains. When I think of miners and waiters in diners, the query forever remains. Why must the show go on? The rule is surely not immutable. It, it might be wiser and more suitable just to close If you are in the throes of personal grief and private woes Why stifle a sob when doing your job when, if you'd use your head You'd go out and grab a comfortable cab and go right home to bed Because you're not giving us much fun This laugh clown laugh routine's been overdone Hats off to show folks for smiling when they're blue but more Camille Faux folks are sick of smiling through And if you're out cold, too old and most of your teeth have gone Why must the show go on? I sometimes wonder Why must the show go on? Why must the show go on? Now why not announce the closing night of it? The public seem to hate the sight of it dear and so why you should undergo this terrible strain We'll never know, we know that you're sad We know that you've had a lot of storm and strife But is it quite fair to ask us to share your dreary private life? We know you're trapped in a gilded cage But for heaven's sake, relax and be your age Stop being gallant and don't be such a bore Pack up your talent 
there's always plenty more And if you lose hope, take dope and lock yourself in the john Why must the show go on? I'm merely asking, why must the show go on? And with that sound of a car horn, we move on to Il Sopasso, Dino Rizzi's masterpiece. Um, it's a part of a genre called Commedia dell'Italiana, Italian-style comedy, which was a movement in the 1960s of people who were kind of not particularly in love with Italian art house cinema. They wanted to make their own genre. They wanted something a bit lighter and a little more commercial than Italian art house cinema. And Risi was a part of that, and Il Sopasso is probably the best known of the Commedia dell'Italiana movies. I said that a lot more smoothly this time. I've been practicing. In America, when it was first released, the movie was known as The Easy Life, which was a way of cashing in on La Dolce Vita, of course, The Sweet Life. But Il Sopasso is a much better title because Il Sopasso basically means overtaking when you're driving. And there's a lot of that in the movie. Uh, it stars Vittorio Gassman as a guy called Bruno, who's a 40-year-old guy. He owns a sports car. He um, is lecherous and exuberant and easygoing and friendly and a bit of a rogue. And then we have Roberto, played by Jean-Louis Tritignon, who is a very kind of introspective, a bit younger. He's a law student. He, his family is kind of wealthy from the country. And he needs to, on a public holiday, uh, which was Ferragosto, the public holiday in Italy, he's studying for his law exams and he needs to get this done. He lives in an upstairs small apartment in a newer part of Rome when suddenly this older guy with a sports car yells at him from downstairs asking him if he can make a phone call for him and tell somebody that he's going to be late. Um, eventually, Roberto decides to let him up to his uh, apartment so that he can make the phone call himself. Bruno tries to make the call, the person isn't there, and he strikes up a conversation and, and the beginnings of a friendship with Roberto, and they decide they're going to go on a drive. It's a public holiday, there's not many people left in Rome. Bruno offers to take Roberto out for a drink and aperitivo, and they kind of slowly work their way out of Rome and along Via Aurelia, out of the city and into the countryside while they're look, ostensibly looking for a drink, then they're looking for fuel, then they kind of end up on this road trip over two days through Lazio and Tuscany while they kind of you know, explore their friendship, have a few adventures, and it kind of, yeah, it's a, it's a complicated film in a lot of ways, but it's a very simple premise. It's a road movie. Let's just start with it's a road movie. Now, a road movie needs four things to work. It needs one person who's an extrovert, one person who's an introvert. It needs a vehicle, and it needs the landscape through which they're traveling. And this movie's got all of those things. Bruno and Roberto are kind of opposites, but they have qualities that the other person admires and needs in a way. Now, Dino Risi, who directed it, studied psychology. And he kind of was interested in having complex characters without losing the entertainment value of what he was making. 
he liked kind of emotional and psychological complexity in his character. And so Bruno and Roberto are complicated people. We find out more about both of them as time goes on, which both reveals who they are and explains the way they've been acting to a big extent. Bruno has had an unsuccessful marriage. His wife is quite successful in her own business and has a country villa where they meet up again. Uh, Bruno and Roberto meet Bruno's daughter, played by the lovely Catherine Spark. Uh, her name's Lily. And we also meet Roberto's family who live in their country villa with all of the servants around. They're agricultural. And one of the interesting things there is that um, Roberto has an idealised memory, an idealised kind of me mental picture of where he grew up and how he grew up. And as Bruno comes into that world, he points out things to Roberto. The fact that um, one of his uncles may only be his half-uncle, in a sense. And um, also there's some stuff with the aunt of Roberto, who Roberto had a crush on when he was much younger. And who Bruno kind of flirts with and, and kind of gets to know and actually helps in some very unusual ways um it's there's a there's a complexity there with these two characters now one of the themes in this movie is that italy at the time was moving from an agricultural rural family-based society to a more commercial capitalistic society where people are very much entrepreneurs and move and out for themselves to a big extent. This was part of uh, an economic um, change, which was also known as Il Sorpasso, where things were moving into the cities and the nature of Italian society was changing a lot. And Bruno represents one side of that, but in a sense he's kind of longing for the simpler life in some ways. And Roberto, who comes from that background... Is moving into the city to start his career as a lawyer. So they've kind of crossed paths in a way. Uh, Bruno is brusque, he's um, flirtatious, he's charismatic, he's athletic, and he's very opinionated. He's got strong opinions about everything, something with which I empathised. And he's, Gasman is fantastic in this one. Uh, you may have seen him in a whole bunch of other films. I think he was the bad guy in Sharky's Machine, if I recall right. Again, I'm going to pause, but I'm not going to play the pause music while I double-check that, but I'm fairly sure he was the bad guy, the guy who um, had groomed Rachel Ward's character. Yep, I was right. Got it right this time. <laughs> um, yeah, he, he um, he's an interesting actor because he had a movie star's good looks. He's a great-looking guy, but he was very fond of playing against that top. He was more interested exploring vanity and, and how vanity is a bad thing and insecurity in a, in a character and things like that. And I'm cribbing a little bit from the notes on this DVD copy of Il Sopasso, which is a Criterion edition, which shows you how highly the movies are regarded. It's a very complex movie, and I want to make sure that I convey some of what it's about. Uh, there's also the music. The music in this one is fantastic. One of the things I got, I ordered the movie because I'd heard good things about it on eBay, and there was also the soundtrack available for like 12 or $13. I'm still waiting on getting the CD of the soundtrack. 
but I have heard chunks of it. It's got Italian pop music from the 60s, which fill the film as well in an almost dogma style where you hear the music playing on various radios around the place as Bruno and Roberto have their adventures. We've got a different version of Quando, Quando, Quando from Tony Rennes than the one I'm familiar with, and that's kind of cool. A whole bunch of other Italian pop songs from the time. It's got a lot of that kind of vibe that they added into the Man From U.N.C.L.E. movie that Guy Ritchie did, which is very underrated, the one he did a few years ago. Very underrated, but he uses Italian pop music very well, and I think it may well have been informed by movies like Il Sopasso. And there's also a good background soundtrack by one of my favourite Italian film composers after Morricone, Riz Ortolani. Uh, It really does give an energy to the film, and... There's a lot of dance scenes in the movie of people dancing. There are young people doing the twist. There are um, people dancing older style as well. And Bruno, of course, uses this to advantage. While they're uh, at nighttime, they're in a town and end up in a cafe with a man who Bruno had some business dealings with and who Bruno basically ripped off for a fair amount of money. And he's trying to kind of get in good with this guy again. And he dances with the man's much younger and very attractive wife. And there's some nice moments there of Bruno dancing with this woman and kind of flirting with her. They've obviously had a liaison before and they're kind of getting very close. And there are some vague allusions to the fact that Bruno is getting a heart on, which for 1962 is fairly advanced. While Roberto is sitting at a table and he's a little bit nervous and he's kind of exchanging glances with a very attractive woman at another table. He never gets the follow-through, but there is that kind of little frisson there of Roberto and this attractive woman flirting. There are some other character bits which um, Alexander Payne in the prelude to the movie pointed out where Risi does some really interesting things with extras and with people in the background. He gives little moments of business to a lot of extras. There's a couple who are dancing uh, not far from Bruno and the um, business guy's wife who get a little kind of moment to give us a character vignette almost. There are people in the background in other scenes. There are, the, there are There's a lot of room in this movie for the director to be generous to minor players in his piece in order to fill out the world through which his main characters move. And Bruno, uh, sorry, and Dino Risi, I'm thinking Bruno, Dino Risi really does have that generosity of spirit to use those players and to use those moments to give us uh, a luxurious and detailed world of people who are on holiday. They're partying, they're enjoying life, they're either in the mountains or at the beach, and they're just, you know, so many tiny bits of character. I've got to watch this movie two more times, I think to really absorb all the wonderfulness of it. It really does have a deep texture that I really want to experience a little bit more. Um, I don't want to watch it too many times because there's a magic to really good films where if you watch things too many times, some of the magic goes away and you lose the thing that attracted you to the movie in the first place. It's like favourite movies of my like two weeks in another town or The Bad and the Beautiful, where I love them a lot but I don't watch them too often because I know 
that that familiarity is going to diminish or at least make ordinary the things that I find extraordinary in the films. And I like Il Sorpasso enough that I don't want that kind of fading out to occur. So much good acting in this film as well. Bruno's wife, played by an actress called Luciana Angiolillo, is really interesting. She does give us a bit of background about Bruno when he was younger. Uh, During the war, he saw an Italian Navy uniform, and he wore an Italian Navy uniform a lot, though he was never in the Navy because he liked the uniform. He liked the way it made him feel, liked the way he made it look. And um, so he took advantage of it. And there's almost a kind of maternal thing that his wife has for him. She cares about him because she sees him almost as a lost child. He's exuberant, but not a grown-up in some ways. And um, Luciana does give that character a lot of depth. She's a very graceful woman. She lives life on her own terms. And she does have it in her heart to be compassionate towards her ex-husband, though she does reject his advances in no uncertain terms. She doesn't need him in the nuts or anything, but she's very firm about it. And Bruno, contrary to what would have happened in some other films of the time, accepts the refusal kind of philosophically. He's one of those guys who flirts a lot and makes advances a lot in a friendly way and not in a kind of aggressive way towards women. And if it's not successful, he just goes shrugs and moves on to the next one. He's like a bumblebee moving between flowers, in a sense. And uh, Gasman puts that across really well. There's there's a fine line that he plays with uh, the role of Bruno, where it can be he's a jerk, and unashamedly he is a jerk, but he's a sympathetic one in a lot of ways. He do, has moments of grace where he does the right thing. He tries to pay back Roberto the money he owes him as quickly as possible, for instance. He has a disagreement with his daughter about her plans for her future, but over time he thinks it through and he accepts that her choices are valid, even though from a 21st century viewpoint they may not particularly be valid, but she does have a plan for her future. She has a goal. She has a, um idea of what she wants to be and how she wants to be that. And Bruno respects that as he does with his wife's career choices, which is a very complicated and nuanced way of looking at things for that particular era in Italy. Um, There's just so much to Risi's film here to burrow into and to like about these characters. Roberto, too, changes. He becomes a little bit more confident and he starts enjoying things a lot more than he did. That infectious... The relationship's not unlike, and here's a weird parallel for you, but I'm running with it. In the original version of The Producers, the relationship between Max Bialystok and Leo Bloom, it's kind of like that, but in a totally different context. There's the exuberant, out-there, roguishness of um, Zero Mostel versus the diffidence and the kind of studiousness of Gene Wilder. There's a little bit of that in Vittorio Gassman and Jean-Louis Trittignon in this film. There's that, the same kind of dynamic but play there. And in a male kind of buddy comedy, which almost this is, though there are some serious moments and there are some very serious moments at the end of the film, it still plays out that um, Roberto becomes, in a sense, a bigger self 
than he would have been had he not met Bruno. And toward the end of the film, he just kind of loves the fact that Bruno's driving so wildly and so crazily. And he tells Bruno that the two days they've spent together are the best in his life. He's enjoyed himself. He's seen things and done things he hasn't done before. He's learned more about who he is and who his family is and where he came from. He's made a friend, which the implication is that Roberto doesn't have many friends in Rome. And there's a kind of blossoming for both characters. Bruno takes from Roberto his seriousness and his attitudes and his thoughtfulness. And Roberto takes from Bruno his love of life and his exuberance. And so there's a kind of cross-pollination between the two men, which makes it really, really interesting. Bruno is all facade, and Roberto starts out with no facade. But you, you learn to love the characters. That's one of the things about this film that surprised me. I was expecting it to be a kind of Italian fast-paced movie. But I wasn't kind of expecting to like the characters as much as I did and to kind of get invested in their lives and the, their aspirations and the way they live and the beautiful texture of the world through which they move. The cinematographer for this film was a guy called Alfio Contini who had started out doing documentaries and his cinematography reflects that wonderfully. The, the choice of locations are great. The roadside cafes, the petrol stations they move through, the restaurants and the towns and the graveyard that uh, Bruno and Roberto meet a couple of young women in. Um, the, the choice of locations are perfect and they give us a strong sense of place, which is that fourth pillar of a road movie. The two protagonists, the vehicle and the locations and the people they meet and all of that kind of comes together in this movie it's one of the great road movies i think that i've ever seen it's you know that in a sense is a very simple plot in some ways but the complexity is in the characters rather than they do this then they do this then they do this now our good friend morris um actually found a copy of il Paso at his local library after i said that i watched it and loved it and i was going to do it for the podcast so um, I really love sharing the love about a film like this because it's easy that for you not to know it's there. It's not one of the big Italian films. It's not the Dolce Vita. It's not Antonioni's La Clice, which, by the way, gets name-checked in Il Sopato in a kind of interesting meta way. It's made me want to go back and look at that documentary that Scorsese did about uh, Italian cinema in the mid-20th century. I'm going to go watch that soon after I finish recording this podcast because I want to find some more movies like this. I want to find movies that have the vitality and the emotional and psychological complexity of this film while being immensely entertaining. I want to see more movies like that. I want to find them. I want to kind of absorb them because to bring back to what I said earlier, I want to see more movies I haven't seen before this year. I really want to make that the main criterion for me watching a movie in 2019 because I think that's what's keeping me fresh as a movie buff and as somebody who communicates about movies. And that is not just going over the same old shit and referring to the same old shit all the time. It's not necessarily shit, but the same movies previously. I want to kind of expand where I am 
and there's so many directions to expanding, you just don't know where to go, and you can kind of freeze on it. I don't know how much I want to see a lot more Wuxia movies, but if I see that, I may not have time to look at Italian movies of the 1960s. And if I watch those, I won't have time to look at French films I haven't seen. There are a few classic French films I want to see again. There are some um, Italian, sorry, American film noirs that I'm just finding out about now. There are some Australian films that I um, haven't seen from recent years that I want to dip into. Uh, there's just so many possibilities there. And Chinese films and Korean films and Japanese films particularly, given the fact that we're going to Japan soon. Um, there's just a wealth of choices and a wealth of accessibility that we have now to cinema. And it's unprecedented in the history of the world. And it's so easy just to kind of retreat to your little corner and only watch the things that come to your local cinema or to just watch things as they come on television or streaming services and just kind of go with the received wisdom of the crowd around you. But there's also the opportunity to kind of strike out on your own to hit the wild side of things and to go down paths that don't seem to have been walked on very much and to find movies like Il Sopaso and a whole bunch of other ones that I haven't seen yet and to kind of enjoy learning about them and learning about the world. Uh, one of the lovely things about foreign language films is they show you different ways of seeing the world than ones with which you're familiar. And it's an incredible gift not only to be entertained by these movies, but to be educated by them and to be informed by them and to see the commonalities between a whole bunch of different cultures and the contrasts and to learn through that where, I mean, I would love to be traveling a lot more than I am, but I'm going to take the Japan trip and, and suck the juice out of it when I get there. But I also want to learn more about places that I'll never get to. And the way we do that is through cinema and documentaries, of course, but fiction sometimes much more entertaining. So that's about it for Ilsa Pass. I'm not sure if I did it justice. I hope I did to a certain extent or at least given you the idea that you need to find this film and definitely see it. I know there are some copies available on eBay. I know you can get it in the Criterion Edition. I didn't get the Blu-ray. I got the 2K transfer on DVD, but it looks pretty good on my 55-inch TV, so I'm not unhappy with that. But uh, it's if you're into classic cinema, you definitely need to at least watch this one once. I just got a Facebook message from somebody telling me that the Melbourne International Film Festival did it um, recently, showed Il Paso recently, which was kind of cool. But the lovely thing here is I've got a copy of it I can watch repeatedly. And I'm sure before next year, I'll watch this one again and just kind of go for that ride with Bruno and Roberto one more time. So that's about it this time around. Thank you for listening, and I'll be back next week with a Martian Drive-In podcast, and I'll be back in two weeks with another Paleo Cinema podcast, totally different than this one, because the movies will be totally different than these two. So, um, as usual, look after yourselves, take care, watch some good movies, watch some bad movies, watch some Italian Commedia dell'Italiana movies. 
And as usual, here are the credits to the Paleo Cinema podcast, done in the style of movie credits in order to honour and respect the Patreon subscribers that help make this podcast possible. I'll catch you next time, and here are the credits. I may slip a bit of music in after this as well, so sit through the credits so you can get the post-credit sequence. See you later. Here are the credits for Paleo Cinema Podcast and Martian Driving Podcast, done in the style of movie credits to honour the people who support this podcast. Thank you to Tom, the focus puller, Sarah, the special effects technician, Ian, the caterer, Grant, the technicolor consultant, Claire, the script doctor, Gary, the prop master, Morris, the musical director, Jan, the dialect coach, Arm and our key grip, Matt, the rattlesnake wrangler, Elaine, our scientific advisor, Julia, our casting director, Chris, our camera operator, Christopher, our gaffer, Miss Jane, our wardrobe mistress, Tansy, our foley artist, Alyssa, our location scout, Mark, our second unit director, Paul, our special makeup effects director, Tammy, the donut wrangler, Tim, our New York unit director, Rabbi Steve, our spiritual advisor, uh, Steve Sullivan, our director of monster effects, Dylan, our goat wrangler, Eric, our set security lead, Richard H, our set photographer, Mark D, our extra, and David L, our extra. Kerry H, who is the accountant. And our newest supporter, Gary J, who is a CG effects technician. So thank you very much to all of the supporters of the podcast. I really appreciate you dipping into your purses and helping out with the podcast. Dondolo, guarda come dondolo con il twist Con le gambe ad angolo, con le gambe ad angolo fallo il twist Sarà perché io dondolo, saranno gli occhi tuoi che brillano Ma vedo mille, mille, mille lucciole venirmi contro insieme, insieme a te Guarda come dondolo, guarda come dondolo con il twist Con le gambe ad angolo, con le gambe ad angolo fallo il twist Le ginocchia scendono, le mie gambe tremano Forse sono brividi, brividi d'amore Guarda come dondolo, guarda come dondolo con il twist Con le gambe ad angolo, con le gambe ad angolo fallo il twist Sarà perché io dondolo Saranno gli occhi tuoi che brillano, ma vedo mille, mille, mille lucciole venirmi contro insieme, insieme a te. Guarda come dondolo, guarda come dondolo con il twist. Con le gambe ad angolo, con le gambe ad angolo, fallo il twist. Le ginocchia scendono, le mie gambe tremano, forse sono brividi, brividi d'amore. Come tondolo, guarda come tondolo con il twist Con le gambe ad angolo, con le gambe ad angolo fallo il twist
guarda come dondolo, guarda come dondolo con il cis. Con le gambe ad angolo, con le gambe ad angolo, fallo il cis. Le ginocchia scendono, le mie gambe tremano, forse sono brividi, brividi d'amore. 